I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie, I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is with former PGA Tour player Roberto Castro. Uh, Roberto was out at the players this week, uh, took in some of the action early in the week, and uh, he came on to just talk about the 2022 players as well as we got into kind of golf development at the end of the podcast. Uh, Roberto is the co-host of his own podcast. It's called The Course Record Show. He dives into the business of golf. It's it's super interesting. He has a lot of great guests on, and it's a little bit different angle. It's very unique. I would recommend listening to that. You can listen to that on anywhere you get your podcasts. And he is also a senior advisor at CapTech, an IT consulting uh, company that dabbles in sports, as well as the owner of Castro Golf Consulting, which uh, does logos and different branding for for golf. So we talk about the 2022 players, which was quite an uh, interesting and compelling watch, and as well as some other things. And without further ado, here is Roberto Castro. All right. Another players in the books. Roberto, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm just uh, I'm hanging in there. It's early here in uh, on the West Coast, I'm trying not to wake up the kid. You were out there uh, early in the week. How uh, how was uh, being a spectator at TPC Sawgrass? Yeah, other side of the ropes. It's funny. My credential. I have a corn fairy credential, and it says inside ropes. And my colleagues in my new gig are like, so you can just go under the rope at any time into the fairway. And it's like. No, you kind of just enter at the driving range and then you're inside the ropes for good. They just kind of felt like I could just go check out a putting green at any time if I wanted to. But it was good. Players was, the course looked unbelievable. It's such a bad break with the weather. But on Tuesday, Wednesday, it looked just pristine. It was it was teed up for a great week, but what a disaster weather-wise. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was... In a way, I think this is just something that I feel like I kind of liked the Monday finish um, just because I think it's it was different for somebody that covers golf all the time. And like I had like a real Sunday night for a, a rare real Sunday night for me. But, you know, obviously always a bummer when you miss out on that primetime window. That being said, some of the weather, I think, made for awesome TV um, Saturday with that wind um, while some players might have uh, not really appreciated being sent out there. I think like you look at Kevin Kisner, he finished three shots short of the, of getting in a playoff. And that's the exact scoring differential between the two waves. I, he had some pointed comments about it, but you know, that, that viewing made for incredible TV uh, with the wind and everything. And one question I had you for you was, you know, as somebody, you know, 
that played on the tour, played in three players. Is there anything that we can glean as fans from Saturday about players, or was it just one of the like freak weather and the few guys who played well uh, just had it that day? And it was just one of those days. If you don't have it, you look look really bad, and if you have it, you look really good. I would say people were reading into it a little bit too much. Like the constant, you know, Justin Thomas's ball shape, his shaping, his shots, and his high and his low. I mean, he's one of the five best players in the world, whether it's dead still or blowing 40. So I think people were reading into it a little bit too much. But about the Monday finish, totally unexpected COVID outcome. What percentage of people are working from home now and had that on a second screen for 12 hours on Monday? Like every single person. And I know that, especially during Masters, that people get that screen going Thursday. But I bet the numbers were way up compared to a similar situation three years ago because so many people, especially golf fans, are working from home. Yeah. Also, I mean, expanded coverage, right? You know, you right. have you have so much more ability to watch now. And I think like that's been one of the big revelations this year with the ESPN Plus coverage is like how much better the streaming options are for when you get these weird schedules is that like ESPN Plus as opposed to like, you know, no, no shots at PGA tour live before ESPN plus, but you, you watch that main feed now and it actually feels like a real golf telecast, right? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I, I, it's interesting. I think there's a balance, right? Because I think Justin Thomas, what he did was pretty incredible. Like some of the shots he hit, you know, the knockdown three wood or five wood, whatever it was on 18 that went from 206 was something that you you just didn't see a lot of guys attempt. You know, him, he was one of the few players that I thought really hit the shot that was you needed to hit on 17, which was, you know, taking four extra club than you, you know, than you think is the right club, you know, based off the number and hitting that six iron and, you know, really flighting it down. I thought, you know, it's so rare that we see the best players in the world have to hit really different shots just because of, I think how optimized everything's gotten, you know, with the, with the spin spin rates so low with drivers and everything that in a way it, it, it did expose some people like, you know, that went out there and just tried to kind of hit like a Almost like I think they were trying to knock it down in some regards, but just like did not have even like the weren't even in the right stratosphere of of what type of shot to hit in certain situations. Right. Um, people that maybe only hit one shape like the, that high fade was not going to work on 17 at all. Like There's no way you were going to hit a high fade and have any semblance of success. So I think there was a little something to glean, but the reality is that we don't get these conditions very often. And, you know, what are, what are the chances of, of them coming up in a major week? Uh, is so low, right? Totally. And I think you nailed it as far as weather dictates scoring and weather dictates the interesting nature of events. All this talk about setup and course design you need weather. But I think the biggest takeaway for me was it showed what would be possible more regularly if the ball went 10% shorter. That was the biggest thing I thought of was March versus May is going to bring in more weather in March. And this was an extreme case of that. But 
you had Jason Day hitting two iron sandwich into 18. And with this cold weather, which makes the ball go 10% shorter, you had everyone hitting driver off the tees again. Huge difference. Number 10, guys were hitting driver and maybe three wood and spraying it all over the place. Number 18, you saw guys in the right wood. You saw guys everywhere because they were hitting driver. And that five wood Justin Thomas hit, okay, extreme wind, but that hole's like 465. If he's hitting a tee shot 260, 270 instead of 310, the, there's a much higher chance you get to see three and four and five irons. Some of the shots Kisner was hitting, like low bullet draws through the wind, you can get a lot more of that if the ball just went shorter. Yeah, I and I think that it brings out skill. Like one of the things I I was thinking about on Saturday when it was happening, you know, Kisner played really well. He had obviously, I think it was the fifth hole, or he made made a double or a triple, if I recall correctly. I don't have the scorecard yeah. up in front of me, but um, you know, he played a really great round. And one of the things I was thinking was, a he hits a draw, which is a little out of fashion. Um, not a lot of the top plays players hit draws, which holds up a lot better in the wind, but B the other aspect of it is Kevin Kisner is far more accustomed to hitting long irons into greens totally. on a regular basis. And you know, that that's it, you know, it makes a big difference when, you know, if you're one of the guys like, you know, DJ or, or Brooks or, you know, insert long, long player, you're not used to like DJ recalled like vividly when the last time he hit a three iron, he had to hit a three iron into a green. And he recalled vividly the last time he had to hit a three iron. And he's like, and they asked, you know, why, why do you remember it so clearly? Well, I don't, that barely ever happens. And right. I think you're, you're right. Like the shot making that comes um, from the ball going a little bit shorter is, is so, and I think that's the thing that was everybody loves so much, whether they can get to that point, you know, extrapolate the point to where, like what they loved about Saturday was that these guys really were challenged and had to hit different shots, which is, you know, which is great. Like it's, it's way more fun to watch, you know, a, you know, whether it's a, you know, NFL, a great offense go against a great defense than it is to watch, you know, a great offense go against the worst defense in the league. No, no offense to your Falcons. Oh, none taken. <laughs> uh, agree totally. The the my argument for making the ball go shorter has always been that I think it's more interesting to watch players hit fourteen clubs, and that's what you saw. That's what you saw on Saturday. And it's kind of funny. You have the old timers that say not only should the ball go shorter, it should spin more. Well, what did we see Saturday? It was cold, so the ball went shorter, and it was windy, which makes the ball spin a lot more. So it was like right there in front of you, like that could be possible. And instead of seeing driver wedge, driver wedge, driver wedge, and then a 240-yard par three where you get to see Brooks hit a four iron. It's the only time you get to see him hit a long club. You actually got to see it through the golf course, and it was great. It was great to watch. I didn't watch a ton on Saturday, but that shot on 14 that Kiz hit, that hole's 460, 470. Like, that yeah. should be a hole that you're watching guys hit four and five irons into. And he hit this rip hook through the wind to the back pin to like 20 feet. It was an incredible shot. And, and to your point, I think he's the, he's done that. He has to hit a couple four irons a day and JT and Rom and those guys never do. So it was cool to watch. Kisner's like a perfect example of a guy. I think like of, you know, 
when you're a shorter hitter to play at the level that Kisner plays at is so impressive. And it makes me always wonder, like if the ball went a little shorter and being able to overpower a golf course wasn't such a prevalent thing, how much higher in the world rankings, how much more well thought of would Kevin Kisner be as a pro? Because when you look at his stats, he, he does everything extremely well, you know, from he's accurate off the tee. He's a great iron player. He's great putter. He's great. He's got great short game, but you know, where he can't just bully golf courses like a, you know, like, you know, some of the better players like Jason Kokrak can do, for example. Yeah. What kiss does is incredible. Kiss kiss game on the modern PGA tour. He can legit contend in six or eight tournaments a year. And I don't think he would disagree with that. And then he does in four of those six. He finishes in the top 10 at RBC, the players, Sony, Greensboro, almost every year. Do you know how hard it is to say you're only going to get six at-bats this month or this year and you need to hit four home runs and he does it? Incredible. Yeah, and I think it's... It's one of those things like he's a, you know, it makes me think of like great pinch hitters <laughs> when you say you only get a couple appearances. It's like right. the guy that, that you can bring off the bench in the seventh or eighth inning and he just like always figures out a way to get on base at those places. And, but one of the things is, is like when the conditions are right, that's when he pops in, in majors. Like, and we've seen him be. Right relevant in majors he hasn't gotten it done uh but what is it quail hollow if you you know when justin thomas had had his uh one he was in that uh in the mix there and then you know he's a great match play player which i think is like it's kind of telling like he's a guy you wouldn't want to see you know playing because he doesn't give you anything but when you were on tour i i'm curious like like how much does is weather the ultimate you know I need to use a lot of shots in my bag or like I, or how does that work with like the balance of course setup and weather, like which carries the most impact to how different you could play a course. I really think it's 90% weather driven because the only other course setup factor is putting tight pins to firm greens. And then there's only one shot you need. It's high mm-hmm. and it's long because so you can have a shorter club in. So if they set it up tough, 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 that just means tighter pins, firmer greens. All I want to do is hit it high and long. But when you bring weather in, there's a few different ways to get around the golf course, and and which you saw on Saturday. I think this was extreme weather, right? You know, we aren't going to get a lot of this, but like it made me think. This is once once every twenty years, horrendous weather. Yeah. It made me think that they should have a tour event at like literally the windiest locale in the, in the country every year, just because of what what type of shot making we got to see. And they do, they do. It's called Honda, and nobody plays in it yeah. because it's brutal. It's that we have that tournament. It's the Honda Classic. You're just signing up to get punched in the face. Yeah. Yeah. South Florida uh, on a regular basis. It's just like, especially in March, it's just, you're, you you know, there are a lot of days you just don't want to even go outside to hit golf balls. So um, I asked you to prep uh, a couple takeaways and I prepped some for uh, also. And one, one I wanted to talk about something I take took away this year um, that I really appreciated. And, and some people would look at the leaderboard and say, Oh, it was fluky, but one of the things I look at it and say is like, Hey, at the players, is this the one big tournament year in year out where 
everybody really has a chance because of the golf course where it's, it's pretty equitable for all types of players. Yes. But I think that there's two, there's two sides to that coin. Absolutely. It's the most important. It's the hardest tournament to predict who's going to win. I've been on record as saying that these major championships, there's like eight to 12 guys that can legitimately win for a few reasons. One being course setup, one of a few. But the flip side of that is I was at the golf course Sunday for a few minutes and there were like 30, 32 holes left and everyone and their cousin was within two shots. And I was sitting there with a couple of buddies and I said, two guys on that board are going to win this tournament, can win this tournament, Justin Thomas and Cam Smith. And they were like, really? All these guys are in it. Two guys. And I, I was right this time, not always. And Kiz was too far back, or I would have, he started the weekend two under. So I would have put him in that category if he didn't start so far back. So it just begs the question, like, what is it that, at the end, the cream, like Hovland came out of nowhere. The cream rises to the top. Is it the money? Is it the pressure? Is it the lack of experience? But Cam Smith and Justin Thomas just stood out as the most accomplished, polished, nails nails down players on that board. So yes, everyone can contend at the players, but what was the last fluky winner? Like we had winner we had at the players. I mean, I don't I don't think Siwu like everybody would point to Siwu, but I don't think that's a fluky winner. Like no, he's I don't done think so enough and like everybody's like, oh he was like statistically he was having a bad year, but like you look at his career, it's like he was the youngest player ever to qualify for the web.com tour. I agree. Which was that it's like that's not fluky. You know, you looked at the leaderboard and you saw all the all the names that were on there and you saw a lot of like worst case scenarios for the tour is kind of what I I, I, what always goes through my head. It's like I was there the year Siwoo won and I heard the groans of of the media center that, you know, this this is the guy that everybody has to write about. And uh, but Cam Smith, like he's an interesting topic of conversation because he's now sixth ranked player in the world and is discernibly different than the five guys ahead of him um, in terms of how he got to six in the world, uh, the style of play. Um, I think he's, he, it's unbelievable. I think he lost six shots to the field off the tee. He hit some really terrible tee shots, five, five shots. Um, and, you know, but at the at the same time, when you put any a short iron in in, I don't know if there's a player that in the world that I would trust more. Um, and then just like in terms of demeanor and, and overall like personality, I think he's a lot different. He's a lot more laid back than a lot of the better best players in the world are. And um, you know, I I think there is something when when you're coming down the stretch is like certain guys just know how to get the ball in the hole, right? Yeah, putters win. It's just another data point in putters win. Paul Casey's an unbelievable golfer. And the, the break he got on 16 was possibly the worst break I've ever seen in golf. <laughs> he, he could have hit, the way he strikes a golf ball, he could have hit a five iron to a foot there. Instead, he barely makes par. But it's hard to win when you don't make as many, when you don't make putts. And Cam Smith putts so well, and he chips so well. I played with him. He's the best chipper and putter I've ever seen. I played with him at San Antonio one year and the first two rounds, and he chipped in three times, and two of them would be a chip where you're just trying to get it within 20 feet. The eighth hole has a green that's like 50 yards deep 
with this tiny back shelf. And he had a 47-yard bunker shot, and he rolled it in like a putt from 40. He's incredible around the greens. But he's been nails. I watched a few of those President's Cup days when it was at Royal Melbourne, and you could tell that he was totally unflustered by the whole deal, knocking in six, eight, ten-footers. I don't remember who he beat or didn't beat. But he's definitely elevated. But I agree with you on the laid-back part. He doesn't seem – I generally think – and say that to be a top five player in the world, you have to sacrifice kind of your whole life. And those guys eat, sleep, breathe. You know, Rory famously said he had like six open days on his calendar a year. Cam Smith does not strike me that way, which is pretty cool to see. Yeah, I think in, in a way it, it kind of helps him. I've, I've heard that he's like super into pickleball as well as obviously fishing is the, is the, is like, you know, and it just seems like he, you know, he does his work. He's been quoted. He's, uh, I don't know the exact quote, but like, I, I do my job and then I go enjoy life. And it's like, yeah. Oh, that's like, and I think like, it's like this idea, like everybody gets and parents with, of junior golfers now are so focused on specialization. And Cam Smith, a really good example of a guy that was really talented. Obviously he was 21. He finished top five in the U S open. That's how he got his tour card. But, at the same token, he kind of takes some lumps and a different path along the way. There were some, I think, people frustrated back in Australia about, like, why isn't this guy, you know, making it? And a lot of times, you know, the rumors were, oh, it's his work ethic, work ethic. But balance becomes a beautiful thing when you when you figure it out. And all of a sudden, he's got something that a lot of people don't have, which is the ability to depart. And when things aren't going great, he goes out and and does what he wants to do, and I think that, and who knows the pickleball thing? Maybe that helps him. Maybe you know he yeah. looks a little bit more spry this year than yeah. than I mean, he has. His reflexes are up. Yeah, yeah. I I mean I I, I was uh, somebody messaged me. I was talking about this on the shotgun start. Somebody messaged me who's a very very good player and and avid pickleballer who said. It's about being athletic at something other than golf, like that it, it really brings without risk, huge risk of injury. Yeah. Well, there is pretty decent risk of injury, but better if you're 28 versus 68. But yeah, putters, he proved that putters win. And then the last two weeks proved that at the end of a tournament, it always comes down to getting a ball up and down or making a putt. I, I know he stuffed it on 17, and the four iron he hit on 16 was unbelievable. But he gets it up and down on 15, and then he hits that great four iron on, on 16 after snap hooking it. And Scheffler the week before, he gets it all up in the bunker there on 16 at Bay Hill, gets it up and down from 50 yards. It always comes down to a wedge shot. And, and on 18, obviously, I'm forgetting the obvious one. Cam Smith knifes it, knifes it up there to a foot from 55 yards like it's no big deal. It all The winning comes down to making putts and getting the ball up and down it always does when you watch somebody put together an entire round the rounds that win are those ones that like make they make those key saves that keep their momentum and and i think with cam smith it was the middle part of that back nine that was so impressive where he wasn't hitting the best shots but he was he was scoring at an elite level totally i know that the strokes gained approach stat is what everyone says is the golden stat. But what I tell the tech kids, the Georgia Tech guys turning pro, 
every day I'm more convicted in it. You need to be a prodigious driver or putter. It's one of those two. You can play the tour and have success if you drive it or putt it better than anyone else you know. And Hovland and Cam Smith are, are two examples of that. I don't, the proximity from the fairway or, or strokes gained fairway, if you're playing from 320 in the fairway every time, of course you have a good proximity. I think that's more the driver than it is the approach shots. And the putting, you know, is pretty simple, speaks for itself. Yeah, I would agree too. It's like, and in, in if you can drive and putt it well, then you have career years. Like that's, you know, I always pick up Jason Kokrak, but it's like he figured out the putter and he was a right. prodigious driver and he won three, three times in a calendar year. And it's like, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense. It's like if you drive it and putt it good, you, there's not a lot of courses that you can't play. Um, and Paul Casey falls into this boat of what we would d- describe as underachievers. And I, I had a question for you. I've, you, you hit on it. Terrible break. Horrendous break on 16. Um, that being said, I think you you can look at the way he played down the stretch, and it was very, very, very conservative with the shot on 17. And who knows where he was aiming, um, the way he kind of played 18, and and the you know the the decisions he made on 16. He had a hit a bad wedge. He clearly was trying to play that funnel in there, but. You know, it reminded me a little bit of a Poulter a few years ago where he was in the mix, needed some birdies, and he hit it right to the middle of 17 green. And I'm wondering, you know, we like to, as I, as me in the media, likes to poo-poo money. Yeah. This is the richest person in golf. Paul Casey walked away with over a million dollars. Does money really matter coming down the stretch? Does he know, hey... If I if I finish top three, I'm making over a million dollars. If I make a double here, it's going to cost me a half a million dollars. I don't think Paul Casey's thinking about that. I really don't. I think he's trying to hit the right shot. The, the disappointing shot was the wedge on 16. That Not getting that one there, and you saw Sam Burns kind of throw it behind it. They said he can't lose it here. He can only lose it here. He he's, he's two back, and Cam Smith's going to make par. If he wedges that thing, gimme, how many guys have we seen make seven on 17? He could have easily won the tournament, but the wedge was disappointing. But no, I don't I don't think he's thinking about the money. And on 17, every guy is aiming 10 feet left of that thing. And you block it a little bit, you look like a hero. And if you pull it a little bit, you look like a like you bailed out and you were playing for money. So I, I don't think that's I'm gonna I'm gonna say no. He's not thinking about the money. I was just curious. I like at what point does money matter? Like, is it if is it once you reach a certain point? Say, I, I'm just gonna arbitrarily pull, pull a number out of the sky, but like arbitrarily, once you've made twenty million in your career, you kind of it, it it desensitizes it, or is there is there a threshold? Like, I imagine you know, as somebody who who you know, once you get onto the tour, there's probably a shock about. I'm playing for $6 million. I'm playing for $8 million. Like, you know, is, is there, do you think there's a point where you, you can see it, you know, certain types of players, just the money doesn't matter anymore. I think so, but I would say it does not correlate at all to a number. And there's that quote that Cam Smith a couple of years ago said that he's pretty much set. Well, he's pretty much set. You can win 
eighty million dollars and spend seventy of it, and you're going to be you're going to be thinking about that money. So I would I would say in the arc of a normal career, yes, you think about it a lot, and then it it pulls back. But I remember clearly my second tournament on tour was Palm Springs, and I teed off the back Sunday, and I was like seven or eight under, six seven under, I don't remember, with two holes to play, and I was like up into like twenty fifth, and I get on this the eighth hole. And I'm like, my God, it's like a short wedge. If I make another birdie, I could make like $70,000. And I hit this 90-yard wedge 55 yards. Like absolutely <laughs> laid the sod over it. And finished like bogey par and made 25 grand. And yes, five years into my tour career, I would not have been thinking about that, the, the 70 grand, because it doesn't really move the needle five years in. But when you're a 25-year-old rookie and someone's going to – you get to play golf in Palm Springs for four days and someone's going to hand you 70 grand, hell yeah, you think about it. Well, I think that's why so many guys struggle the first time they get in contention. I, I yeah. Like what you just illustrated and, and whether or not people can realize it. Like if you're playing your club championship and you're thinking, oh, if I win this hole, I'm up three with six to go. That's the exact same thought, just in a different spectrum. And it's the worst, absolute worst thought that you can have on a golf course. And it's the absolute worst thought. <laughs> it's like, if this happens, then this happens. It's the worst line of thinking you could possibly have on a golf course. And maybe that's the answer to my question earlier about Sam Burns has more money than he can spend and he's got a, an unbelievable career ahead of him and he's nails like college player of the year. He, he's incredible. Yeah. But maybe he's thinking about it. It's his first players, 3.6 million raising the, the like, I, maybe he thinks about it. And the first time he gets there, he, he kind of drove it bad all day, but I'm just pulling his name out of a hat, right? The, it has something to do with it probably. And maybe it, it might not be money for Sam Burns. It yeah. might be actually the career um, accolades and, and it's moving him. I think a lot of guys, it's maybe not money, but it's what the win does for their career in terms of legacy. Like the players, I, you know, we could talk about this, but like whether it's a major or not, it's, it's not a regular event, you know, certainly yeah, a not a regular deal. event. It's a huge deal. It's a it's a it's something that your peers like the way the collective golf world's going to think of you after a win there is different. And I think that is the you know, there are two things, the money aspect that, you know, you you for certain guys, but then for the most guys, it's it's really that legacy that is the is the big pressure that hangs over them, uh, not to steal Paul Azinger's term, but you know, that's the thing that that kind of weighs on you on a Sunday is is the idea of of almost like and it, it's like there are classes of players on the PGA Tour and a win at the players might leap you a class or two, depending on the player. Totally, totally. Now for a quick word from our sponsor, Elijah Craig. Every player has their own unique style of play. That's part of what we love about golf. It also happens to be what we love about bourbon. Like Elijah Craig, for example, every bottle of their award-winning small batch carries a signature warm spice and subtle smoke flavor. I like to drink my Elijah Craig on the rocks, 
Uh, it's my go-to at the 19th hole. There's also a lot of great cocktails that you can make with bourbon. I, uh, I highly recommend personally a, uh, a Moscow Mule, but substitute the vodka for some Elijah Craig bourbon. Elijah Craig won the double gold at the San Francisco World Spirits Competition last year. It goes to show that hard work and dedication lead to great things. Whether you're watching this week's Valspar, last week's players at home, or playing a few holes with your buddies, make Elijah Craig your signature sip. Discover greatness within ElijahCraig.com slash fried egg. That's ElijahCraig.com slash fried egg. The Fried Egg is brought to you by Elijah Craig, Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey, Bardstown, Kentucky, 47% alcohol by volume. Elijah Craig reminds you to think wisely and drink wisely. Now back to Roberto Castro. Is there anything uh, with the players in, in Sawgrass, is there anything that you think is transferable to Augusta in terms of skills and, and stuff that you need around, around Sawgrass. I would say the shot on 15 at Augusta, a few of the shots at Sawgrass to be a good preparation for it because it's just such a, I mean, that's my favorite golf hole in the world, but being able to hit the correct flight spin and get the correct distance if you have to lay up or if you don't, even if you're going for it in two, but otherwise not really. Around the greens, is that is that telling at all? I, I that's the one thing I was kind of thinking about. Is it's pretty severe around the greens at Sawgrass? No, the and the reason is, and I was actually going to mention this. I'm glad you brought it up. Augusta is super hilly, and mm-hmm. Sawgrass is dead flat. It's built in a swamp. One thing that's really difficult about Sawgrass that you cannot see on TV is that there's no depth perception and you can't really see what's out there. Like the 16th hole yesterday, when you're hitting that second shot with a four iron or a 60 yard wedge shot, it's just railroad ties and horizon and the pin kind of sits there and you can't, you don't really have any depth perception of that shot Paul Casey hit. If you hit it a little too far, you feel like you can hit it in the water. Everything being flat doesn't give you like perspective and depth like it does at Augusta. So that's really, really difficult. And a lot of the shots at Sawgrass are visually very tough because you can't you can't really get elevated like the cameras are. You're just sitting on the ground level and there's all this trouble and it is very hard to explain, but it's totally different than the camera view. When they talk about like when uh the NCAA championship in, in basketball and you go to these huge domes and, and they talk about how hard it is shooting because of depth, it's it I imagine it might be similar kind of situation to that. I think so. I think that your eyes and your and your your eyes give you the feedback that, that you use. And I had never heard that until a few years ago, but it totally makes sense in basketball, right? You see the hoop there and then you see the ceiling is generally eighty feet behind the hoop. Then you go play at the Georgia Dome, and the ceiling and the walls are 400 feet behind the hoop. That has to mess with your brain somehow. So, this is, I think, you know, a topic of that parlays kind of in golf architecture because I I always talk about this is that their good design has some deception with that when you don't have the natural features, right? Or if you do have the natural features, and there's always the idea of like. You know, for for players of the PGA Tour quality, you can know the number. You've got a professional caddy that's telling you the exact number. 
right. you have a even if you have a flat lie, you you know, there's some uneven lies created there because of rumples in the fairway, but you have a flat lie. Knowing in the back of your mind, there's still that element of feel and in something not looking right, or there's maybe not a full trust in what the number is because of what your eyes are telling you has a a big impact on your shot. Yep. Number four at Sawgrass is the only elevation change on the course. That shot is a three wood. Every player in that field can hit 10 three woods in a row on a blanket on the driving range. But that tee sits up about 10 yards, and I bet 8 out of 10 guys would say that's the most awkward shot on the golf course. You see guys flare it into the tree right off the tee box. You see guys hit whip hooks up onto the left hill over there. It's a three-wood. But visually, something about the design being elevated makes that shot really, really difficult. The only explanation is, is the feel and how it looks to the eye. That I mean, think about last year when uh, Westy hit it a mile right, and Bryson topped his three wood on that hole. He, t- he topped his three wood. Yes, that is such a t- terrifying tee shot. And if you went and played it on a Tuesday morning with your buddies, you would think nothing of it. There's nothing to that shot except it's the hardest shot on the golf course somehow. Something I think about so much uh, that you talked about the the first time you were on the pod was the idea of like if you're going to the first tee, the last club that you want to have to hit is your three wood um, because that's where you can look really silly. And that moment, uh, the fourth hole last year, like it, it just like illuminated that to I to like no. And then I've started to think about it more and more. You think about like the viral moments where tour players hit really bad shots, Harold Varner topping it at, at Riviera was a three wood, you know, Francesco Molinari at, I think Pebble this year topped a three wood. Like, it's like, that's the one club where we see really, really bad misses. And it makes me think back to like my high school golf days of standing on the first tee when the driver head was a little bit smaller and really worrying about pop-ups, snap hooks, and all sorts of bad shots, which is probably why I I, I wasn't uh, the number one guy on my high school team. No, and it circles back to what we were talking about at the beginning. What is a three-wood today? It's a smaller head that spins more. It's a driver from the 1980s or the 1990s. So if you want to bring more excitement and more you know, variety to golf, you can do the ball or you could do something with the driver. But, but absolutely, and like the ninth hole at Greensboro – is another slightly elevated tee. And if the weather's warm, I hit like three iron down there and hit eight iron in. And you see some guys hit driver like way up over the bunker. But the last club I want to hit there is a three wood. One year I hit three wood off a house that's not even in play over there and it kicked back in play. But if I hit a driver, it doesn't spin enough for me to like flare it into the house. And if I hit three iron, I mean, it's going to be reasonably down the fairway. Three wood is the absolute scariest club. It all it really makes the point of um you know what you talked about with the wind and how you saw the these clubs that guys were hitting into greens um it kind of makes the point if if there was the ability to get variable golf balls that almost acted the way altitude acts where right. you know you could have because there are benefits to the may players right the the golf course is firmer 
the weather's generally a little bit better, more reliable. Yeah, on site, it's way better. The party vibe and the spectators in May were amazing because it's 90 degrees. College kids are back from it was a totally different vibe and, and an awesome one at May. More daylight too for just getting the getting the field around. We always see the darkness delays, whether you know, not weather dependent, but you know, like it, it makes the case of this variable a variable golf ball where you know, like you see these guys they were playing at Chipotlefac. It's like they go down there, they spend a day hitting track man. The altitude's not a big deal. You weren't seeing guys blow it twenty yards over greens and come up fifteen yards short. They figure it out. And if you could create a ball that reacts similar, but yeah. is variable based off of like, oh, we can take ten percent off this week. We can add, you know, certain places it, you play the full juiced up ball. If you're going to play, you know, Kiowa Island like that, that maybe that's a course that you don't need, like you don't need to have a reduced ball. But when you go to Sawgrass, a place that like there's not a ton of space to to add to it. A lot of those hazards, those diagonal hazards that cut across fairways have become, you know, hey, you're a long hair. You don't need to hit driver. May, March certainly helps with right. more drivers, but, you know, the the idea of keeping that integrity and seeing guys hit shots it it makes a ton of sense because we we saw it play out on Saturday. Yeah. So any other big takeaways for you from the players? Not really. I thought that why were so many like short putts being missed in like 360 spin outs? I thought that was a little strange. Um I have a question for you though. All these yeah, it's the fried egg. Who's going to play all these new golf courses that are being built? There's so many of these destination courses with the cottages being built. Am, am I crazy? Is this is, is it being? Oh, is there a bubble? What what is going on? You know, it's it's good for you know somebody that writes about golf courses to have a bubble. You know, but I would say this is a good segue. I I, I think um I think there's an a little bit of an ahoopy effect going on with some of these places yeah. where Mike Walrath, who's obviously the owner of a uh, a lot of like very wealthy people go there. They see what this guy, what this guy has like his own effective playground and they want one. And obviously, you know, the stock market did quite well through COVID and it was a situation where the rich got richer. And, you know, I think that's led to some of it where I think the idea also, like with just the last five, six years, you know, golf courses and architectures become more popular. And I think one of the things is that architects in a way have become a little bit more accessible and, and people have started to understand like, oh, like, you know, building a great golf course isn't that crazy. Like, I just need to get one of these guys. Right. right. Um, but. I think there's also a a market reaction. This is a good question. It's a lot. There's a lot of layers to this to, you know, they, they see what the Kaisers and then, you know, what stream song and, and Pinehurst does. And it's effectively like the same model, but a, a, on a private level, right? They, right? They've just mimicked the model, right? We're, we're going to build a great golf course. It's going to be a destination, but you start to add up the cost of going to stream song in, in December, and you compare it to the cost of going to, you know, if you can get on to Hoopy. And sometimes you do the math and it's like, well, Hoopy's actually cheaper than Streamsong because they aren't going to ding me nine bucks 
for a Miller Lite. And and so for people that don't aren't aware, is a, a Hoopy has a a daily buy-in is the model. Like I spend, I think it's a, around a thousand dollars, and that's everything. That's all my food. That's all the golf I want to play. Everything. Now you go to Streamsong and you're spending three four hundred dollars for a room, two three hundred dollars or so for 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 golf. And then you add the food in, which is really expensive there, and you're right at a thousand bucks. So I think that's the the thing is that it's just resorts are financially um, incentivized to be the innovators in the industry. The people with the most ability to innovate and and should be most incentivized are municipalities, but they're the last ones to do it, unfortunately. But then, like, so you see, like the short course boom, it starts at at uh, resorts, then it gets passed down to clubs building, converting these five acres into short courses, like all over the place, private clubs. And eventually short courses probably are just now, like you're just starting to see them in municipalities. I know there's the one up in Minneapolis that uh, Ben Warren and a group are building uh, Chaska, Chaska 9. Like it's a short course. Like I think that's the reality of the situation, right? Is like the resorts set that, so if you see trends from resorts, a couple years later, it's going to come to private clubs. And we're at this spot where this is a really long answer. I feel like I've been talking for like an hour, but you know, <laughs> the, you, you, the, the, this private getaway golf is just a knee jerk react and not, not a knee jerk, but a reaction to what the Kaisers and other destination golf's been doing. Yeah. I'm curious to watch it play out because obviously when things cycle down, even these owners, hey, you got these like billionaire owners, you know, like they don't really, they're not really affected by, by recessions, but long-term, you know, their family takes over. Do they want to run a golf course that operates at a loss? It, it, there's a lot to unpack there, but it just feels like there are so many, there are so many of those. And, and maybe there's demand. Like you said, the 1% of people can get on a hoopy. I mean, less it's one one hundredth of one percent have access to a place like that. So the rest of us are calling stream song and they're booked fourteen months in advance. Well that's the thing. Band is accepting reservations in twenty twenty four. They're booked yeah. until then. It's a yeah. it's a crazy so like you this is a supply and demand situation in a way, right? Yeah. I think that I you know, I always say this, like I think the I think they're the where people are missing the boat a little bit is building new courses and I think it's a little bit harder, but there's a lot of great golf courses that people don't know are great golf courses that are available for a lot less money than right. building a new course. Um but like I mean you you also talk to a guy like I I I I think you know Mike Young, right? Yes. Yeah. From LaGrange. Yep. Yeah. He talks, tells me all the time. Like he, he obviously the fields is, a, is like an hour from Atlanta, hour 15, hour and a half from Atlanta, right. but he gets guys that come in and, and they, they fly into Atlanta and they go to Sweetens and they go to the fields and then they drive all the way across the state to Aiken golf club, you know, and that's their trip. It's like they hit those three places and it's like, you probably drive by a lot of good golf courses on the way to those that, you know, would, would make your life a little bit easier, but this destination golf, like people are driving. And I always use this, like people fly to Portland to go to breweries, you know, this is not crazy. People like, this is kind of the, where the society is going. I always though say that it's way better when you can do a golf trip. And this is why I'm such a big fan of like grand rapids, um, 
there's a lot of good golf in San Francisco too. Like when you can do a golf trip to a major metropolitan, um, I think that it, and it's the same thing. If you can go, if you can fly into a city and, and play clubs around the city, which not a lot of people can do, that's a way better experience than going to these remote areas because there's actually like culture and things to do off the course to experience. Right. Right. And I can see where they're getting members too, for these new projects, because five years ago you had, let's say a handful of destination private clubs and you could get called on pretty easily unaccompanied or somebody would host you. And now the tee sheets are so slammed that they've all restricted a lot of guest play and, it's just harder to say, hey, you know, you're a member at Secession. Can I get eight guys on over? They're sold out. They don't want you over there. And so if I'm getting the Heisman for a lot of these private clubs and I hear there's a new one coming up and somewhere nearby there in Buford, I'm, I'm interested in joining because I want to be the guy that says, hey, I just joined this club. Let's take eight eight guys over to this destination private club. So but we'll see. But it's uh, it's interesting that private local clubs have shifted more towards the family the target member for these new destination clubs is your 55 empty nester has time to travel, right? So 20 years from now, that person is retired and not looking to travel two weekends a month to their, so all all these things have a life cycle and a target membership and how it evolves to me is very fascinating. I think there's something to, um, about parenting. And I think about, you know, I, I can't ever compare myself anymore to, to the target market. Right. But right. I think the expectation, um, and the, the role of, of dual parents has changed a lot where for a lot of people, the idea of being a member of a club that they go to a couple times a year, maybe twice, say two trips a year, right. Is a lot more palatable to you know their partner and their family than the idea of a place that you spend every weekend at all sure. year round sure. and i think that's one of the things that that these clubs present is that there is there is a person that's a national member of of club um and whether it's destination or an out of town club that is actually not a member of a club in their hometown Sure. If that makes sense, because you've got you've got kids sport, youth sports, you've got all these things, you've got your job. And, you know, the only time you can really go play golf is if you if you depart, you know, your responsibility. Yeah, I agree. We talk about this a lot on on my business of golf podcast and it's it's everybody should listen it's it's good to listen i like the variety of topics i I I was gonna give a plug on the intro but yeah shameless plug the course record show but but we talk about it all the time and i think one if things normalize a little bit and t-sheets aren't so packed and i don't know if this involves nfts or web3 or whatever all that stuff is a little above my pay grade but I think there's a VRBO model to be used in golf with these private destination clubs. So you just mentioned, I join a destination club. I go three times a year. Take my buddies. Like you said, we peel off for three weekends a year. I pay every month for that club. Why shouldn't I get four tee times a month that I can then go sell on some sort of marketplace? And not palatable right now because everyone's club is sold out. But when if it gets overbuilt or if there's some slack in demand, 
I think a Airbnb VRBO model in golf is really appealing. I really do. I think there's long-term utilization is something we talk about on our podcast all the time. And I think it's something to keep an eye on. Yeah. I, I mean, you here you are, you're giving away free business ideas, right? You know, um, and, Castro golf consulting. That's what we did <laughs> Preferably think, uh, not for free, but occasionally for free. The, uh, there's a, there's a court, that new course that, uh, Ogilvy, uh, and Mike Cocking and Ashley Mead are building and Minnesota has an interesting model from what I've really? read just in news article. I haven't talked to anybody, uh, you know, that any of the owners about it, but, from what I gleaned from an article is that if you're a member, you get effectively like a hundred golf days and you can send four people that. So, you know, if you sent a foursome of your buddies up there, you can do that, but that would take up, you know, that would take up four of your hundred golf days. If that makes sense. I was, uh, I, you know, when, when Zach Blair was, was figuring out, uh, you know, his bottle at the tree farm. I was, uh, I, you know, I'm a procrastinator. I might decide that I want to go do something a week sure. ahead of time. That's the whole point of being a member of a private club. And these destination, all these destination places are built for type A planners, which I think is like probably the vast majority of golfers um, or members, you know, affluent golfers, but right. like, I want a club that I want something that's geared towards me that it's like, you know what, maybe, maybe you can't make a tea time. And, you know, maybe if you, if you want to plan six months out, we say, no, no, no. Right. <laughs> tea sheets closed. Like, I don't know that it doesn't work for a destination because you got to get there. Right? Yeah. But at the same time, that destination doesn't work for somebody who's not, you know, really focused on what their day, day looks like six months in the future. Sure. And that fundamentally you have, let's say 500 members and 180 people can play golf in a day or 200. So you're going to have some disappointed people if, uh, if everyone wants to play. So there's no easy answer, but I think from what I've read about Zach's model, I, and I'm watching close, I watch all these things. I mean, that's what we talk about on our pod is business side of it. I think he's underestimating how much people are going to want to come to the tree farm in the spring and fall and how little people are going to want to come in August and January. And how, how do you flatten that out, especially when you're capped at 48 people on property? That's the thing is you get a perfect day in April. You can run 160 golfers through a golf course, but not if you can only put 48 people on property. And how he's going to handle that, I think, is going to be really interesting. Yeah, I mean it's gonna be interesting for Aiken in general, just with you know the added golf courses and and yeah. I think you know I there's I I've heard that there's just a ton of stuff going on down in your neck of the woods in general. People have uh, discovered the uh, South Carolina Georgia sand vein, and uh, you know for it, since you're you know, so e e interested in, in golf development, there's gonna be a lot of it going on down by you in the next couple of years because a land's cheap and, oh, yeah. and the, you know what a hoopy did was opened everybody's eyes that hey it can dump rain for for you can dump three inches of rain and you go out there 20 minutes after it rains and you still hear that hollow thud yeah and it's a 12 month season it is can be cold and nasty in january february but you can always play and 
If you drink a thousand Gatorades in August, you'll survive. It's hot, but it's hot everywhere. It's hot in the Midwest in August. So it's, uh, it really is a 12 month season. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, you know, now a little diversion. We got variety in this podcast. Um, where can people find uh, your your course record show? This is the course record show. It's at wherever you get this podcast, you can get your podcast. And then, uh, you know, also you got your your consulting business, Castro Golf Consulting. And then you're uh, you're the senior advisor at CapTech Consulting. What do you get to do there? That's right. CapTech Consulting is uh IT technology consulting, but also has carved out a cool practice in sports. So we are the official digital technology provider of PGA of America, PGA Championship, and do work for a few other sports and a few other organizations in golf and beyond. So I spend most of my time with CapTech on real business, and then Castro Golf does uh, design and merchandise, and then CourseRecordShow.com, where we pontificate on the business of golf. And that uh, is on Spotify, Apple Pods, all the places you listen to this esteemed fried egg show. All right. Well, uh, thanks for coming on, and we will uh, we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks, Andy. Thank you for listening to another edition of the fried egg podcast. We will be back later this week. A uh, big thanks to Meg Atkins who edited this podcast. As a reminder, check out the pro shop. We're, we're starting to stock up stuff. We're getting some new things in there and uh, you know, we're getting close to golf season. So support of the fried egg. Great way to do that is through the pro shop. So it's pro shop.thefriedegg.com. We got polos, hats, a bunch of other things. We got prints. If you're into photography, uh, a lot of great prints up there. I think we're, over 60 courses now it's a great way to dress up your man cave or your office and uh we'll be back friday so thank you and we will talk soon